Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Good day. Welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. My name is Arthur Beasley. Today we're talking accounting fees and legal fees. I'm joined by Fiona Redden, a finance reporter in the Irish Times, and by Jennifer Carroll McNeil, former advisor to ministers Alan Shatter and Francis Fitzgerald. First, Fiona, you had a very interesting story in the newspaper on Monday in which you set out very large fees received by the top four accounting and audit firms in the Irish market. That's right, Arthur. Um, We asked the top, the big four accountancy firms for their fee income figures for last year and they showed they were up by 12.3% up to almost $1 across the four firms in Ireland. That's a huge volume of, of, of business. It is, Arthur, yeah. And it's, it's like most of it's across the I- island of Ireland. So it includes Northern Ireland for some of the practices. Very good. Now, these are revenue figures. It's these important are, to point that out. They're not, they're not figures mm. for profitability. Exactly, Arthur. These are revenue fee income figures. The accountancy firms aren't obliged even to disclose revenue figures, which they do, but they do not disclose profitability. So... Very good. But, I mean, it, it does show that uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers in its own account is essentially the, the biggest beast in this in this world right now. That's right, it is, with fee income of about £329 million for 2014. That's a very large volume of business. What kind of clients does this company have? Um, it has clients, publicly listed companies, DCC, Smurfa Kappa, it also audits Bank of Ireland. Right. Now, these are the listed Irish companies, but it's well known that PricewaterhouseCoopers in Ireland uh, does a, a huge volume of business with major American corporates which have substantial Irish operations. It would do, yeah. It's a major contributor, I guess, in trying to bring in business into Ireland, FDI. Very good, very good. And the second placed company is KPMG. That's correct, Arthur. Yeah, that saw its fee income rise by 11% last year, up to £300 million. Again, it reports on an all-island basis. A very large volume of business. And how does that compare with the third-placed company, Deloitte? Yeah, well, it's substantially bigger because Deloitte's, um, it's down at about £200 million, But it grew, again, quite strongly, up 15% in the year. Still a very large enterprise by any by any comparison. Indeed, yeah. And then fourth place is Ernest & Young, or EY as it's known now. It, um, it, had the, it was the fastest growing firm in 2014, up 17.7% to £166 million. 
Okay, very good. Now, all of these figures are, are public, but they're, they're not public due to any particular obligation on the firms. These are figures that they have essentially disclosed to you. That's correct, Arthur. Yeah, as partnerships, they don't have to disclose revenue profitability figures in Ireland. And no obligation, whatever, but this, as we've said, they, they decide they want to do this. Yeah, they, they, they do tend to be that bit transparent compared to other professional services. This is different from the legal world. Indeed, yes, which again has no obligation, but also is far less transparent in how they disclose their financial information. And, and it is true there's only one Irish firm of uh, solicitors in the, in the sense of a business law firm that actually discloses the kind of fee income that it receives. Yeah, that's Mason, Hayes and Karen. Right, and that's a business which has uh, revenues in the region of 60 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. And what I mean, do we know then of the other firms? Well, very little, but based on um, revenue per partner model, it, you can extrapolate based on that 60 million figure at Mason, Hayes and Kern. And there's a UK magazine called The Lawyer that does that. And in 2013, it showed that across the big five, which is... Arthur Cox, McCann Fitzgerald, Daniel Goodbody, Matheson and William Fry, they total fee income estimated, of course, of 500 million. Between those, uh, Between those, those very big large five. firms, yeah. again, very large volume of business. Mm-hmm. What kind of estimate has made in respect of these very large firms? Arthur Cox is regarded, as mm-hmm. we know, as the, pretty much the largest firm. Yeah, and the figures in the lawyer would show that that is true, 114.5 million. Yeah, annual fee income it, give, it gave with employees of only 700. Okay, so that's, a, that's an estimate extrapolated from fee an income in, in, another, in mm-hmm. another company, but uh, shows very large fee income in a scenario where it has 700, 700 uh, fee-earning people on the books and it, as compared with the likes of a large accounting firm where you could have uh, many thousands of people. Many thousands, yeah. PwC in Ireland employs over 3,000 as a comparison. Okay. And what are the other estimates for the other large firms mentioned? Yeah. So in second place we would have A&L Goodbody, 105 million a year, followed by McCann Fitzgerald, 103 million, Matheson, 101 million and William Fry 68.5 million. Again, very large volumes of business and even the the smaller of those firms mentioned when you're talking revenues in excess of 60 million, uh, clearly that's a you know on a per week basis that's well in excess of 1 million euro. Yeah. So very, very large Profit- organisations. Profitable, perhaps. We don't know exactly. But uh, these companies are under no obligation whatever to disclose. No, no. Their fee income. No, it's partnerships. Uh, and they choose not to. They choose not to. They would say for commercially sensitive reasons, I suppose. It's usually the line trotted out. <laughs> Very good, very good. Jennifer Carroll McNeil, you, uh, in your in your capacity as advisor to two ministers for justice, would have uh, had an involvement in the uh, ongoing but still delayed overhaul of the Irish legal sector. That's right. This is the Legal Services Regulation Bill, introduced in 2011, as I understand it. Well, it's, it's at report stage this week in the Dáil, and it's expected to complete report and final stages this week in the Dáil, and then move to the Shannon in May. So it's expected that it will be enacted before the summer recess. But there's no question but that it's taken an awfully long time to get to this point for some very practical and terribly mundane reasons, which are still unsatisfactory, mm. but nevertheless just a practical reality of legislative drafting. What is this overhaul cast to achieve? Well, it does a couple of things. It, first of all, establishes a new independent 
regulator for the legal profession, and that's for both branches of the profession, solicitors and barristers. Previously, solicitors had been regulated by the Law Society and the barristers by the Bar Council. Um, And the solicitors were overseen by a High Court judge, that regulatory system. But the barristers, really, it was entirely self-regulating. So this provides a new independent body, which will be chaired by a lay person, have a majority of lay people and a different regulatory structure for solicitors and barristers for the future. That brings us on to the second thing that it can do now that it's an independent legal regulator. It will be the port of call for any complaints by members of the public. So we'll have an independent complaints process where the legal regulator and entities within it, different complaints committees and disciplinary committees and so on, will be able to receive complaints from the member of the public, make assessments, decide whether an investigation needs to be taken take, t- taken place, whether disciplinary proceedings are appropriate in respect of the individual solicitor or barrister. And that's, that's brand new because from the perspective of the consumer, that hadn't been available before. No matter how good the regulatory, the complaints process within the Law Society or the Bar Council had been, it was always solicitors investigating solicitors or barristers investigating barristers. And if you're a member of the general public, well, and you have been perhaps the victim of misconduct or negligence in your legal proceedings, which are always important, you know, they're the transfer of property, wills, family law, whatever it happens to be, it's always important to people. It's sometimes very concerning and disappointing that complaints would be investigated by colleagues. But if all of that is is for the good, uh, why is it then that these reforms have uh, led to so much resistance within the legal professions themselves on both sides? Well, it's not completely clear to me why that would be. Um, I see enormous advantages for both sides of the legal profession in having enhanced consumer and market confidence in the professional structures that are there. The other two elements of the bill, I suppose, which are important is the establishment of a legal costs adjudicator, which will transfer the uh, mediation and dispute resolution as regards legal costs to this, to the the new independent body. But the bit that I suppose has created the most resistance to which which I think you may refer, Arthur, is the establishment of different business structures, which is the fourth main tenant of the bill. Alternative business structures for solicitors and barristers. So what that means is instead of barristers just being able to operate as sole traders, they will now be able to enter into partnerships either with other barristers or with solicitors. And The objective there, to be fair to say, is to essentially to reduce legal costs. Well, there may be different reasons for, for why people would want to do that. I mean, going th- being a sole trader and only having that as, a, as your business model is a bit restrictive for people, particularly at different stages of your career. It's all very well if you're if you're well established and terribly and doing terribly well. But coming into the profession, perhaps it's a little bit more difficult. Perhaps it's a little bit more difficult for working mothers at early stage of their career, where if you're working as a sole trader and you need to take time back for maternity or other reasons, there really is no provision for that. Your spot is filled, you know, and, and it's very hard to manage those kinds of things. Providing legal partnerships will enable people who either have similar practices or or other complementary needs to form businesses together where they can absorb each other's work, share profits and so on, and just provide a different model. It's not saying that the sole trader model is gone. It's just a complementary model alongside it. 
But uh, the, it's fair to say that the, the existing model serves as a constraint on the consumer as well, because if you want to instruct a barrister, you have to essentially instruct a solicitor first. That's precisely right. And the other part of this bill will enable better direct access to barristers, um, particularly for other professionals, architects and, and so on. But that that's exactly right. It's about the whole bill is about opening up legal services in a more market friendly, consumer friendly way. And you know, it's, it's well overdue. There's reports going back, calling for this, dating back to 1982. In particular, the Fair Trade Commission report of 1999, sorry, 1990, the Competition Authority report of 2006, the National Competitive Council report of 2010, 11, 12, you know, it goes on and on, all calling for a breakup of the old traditional models of providing legal services that have proved so restrictive. And when we talk of traditional models, these are models which uh, befit the word tradition, they, they go back for centuries. They go back for centuries. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. But uh, the uh, resistance at the level of the professions has been quite heavy, hasn't it? Yes, initially it was very, very heavy uh, when the bill was published originally in 2011. And the bill was published in really uh, very difficult circumstances. It was a key commitment that by September 2011, the bill would be published. And that was for the purposes of the EU IMF programme. And that was very unsatisfactory because not all of the work was done, but the bill had to be published. There was no way the government was going to miss that deadline. So... That was done, and then and, and there was concerns about the structure of it, whether the authority would be sufficiently independent from government and so on, and gener- that generated a lot of resistance. Significant amendments were made in committee stage following that. And there was a very large but time lag between the introduction of the bill and then lag. the committee stage. And as I said, that's, that's for purely mundane reasons. It, it, bizarrely... <laughs> There is only one team of drafters on this civil law side within the Attorney General's office. So the government priority shifted from getting that bill out and published to getting the personal insolvency legislation done. And it's exactly the same people. So the Legal Services Bill had to go on hold for a while until that body of work was done. Unsatisfactory, but that's the reality. But the sense and the and the political firmament, if you like, on the ground was that the uh, that the legal professions, both on both sides, that there was pretty heavy lobbying going on at the level of the government. Oh, there was very very heavy lobbying going on, but I think much less so from the law society's perspective, who I really think have 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 embraced the bill and the principles in the bill and are very keen and have been working very closely with both ministers for justice to iron out questions and queries along the way. And I think that that's that's very good. And the Bar Council as well have accepted the principle of independent regulation and so on. They're much more concerned about the different business structures um, because of a con- their, their concern that it will interfere with the independence of the legal profession. But that's not a view I, I, t- I share. 
but there will be there will be critics who would say that their concern primarily is that their fear-earning capacity is going to be eroded. Well, you may say that. <laughs> it's a question I ask. <laughs> um, do you think that in this new world, once the, the new law is enacted and the new system comes into place, that we will see a greater level of transparency at the level of fees uh, received by the, the big legal firms and other legal firms? Absolutely, indeed. yes. I think there'll be a better transparency from the moment you sign up to a solicitor to do a particular body of work. In the Act, there is for the first time a set of principles in the in the schedule to the Act about how legal costs can be um, structured and so on. There will be better obligations on legal practitioners, both solicitors and barristers for the first time, to set out detailed estimates of costs, updates on costs as the case progresses, because naturally things change and get more complicated, to send fee notes, very detailed fee notes and so on. And then all of that can be, I think, more easily assessed by the new legal costs adjudicator who will be able to mediate disputes as between clients and lawyers and also make adjudications. And what's really important about this new system is those adjudications, those determinations will actually now be published. So you'll have much better transparency on how legal cost decisions were made and that will give other people a sense of, well, what are the legal costs in this type of case or that type of case and, and where where perhaps did something go wrong? And with, within the legal world, is there, is there any suggestion that that might give people pause to pause to thought, essentially, when it comes to the, the charging of fees, uh, when people become, are knowledgeable that the, such fees could well be made, be made public? Well, um, they, they in a sense, they can... Through the taxing master office at the moment, but they tend not to be. I don't know if that'll give them cause for po- uh, pause for thought. Uh, one of the biggest problems for lawyers as well as actually getting paid there's a, a lot of many barristers particularly young barristers down in the forecourts who are doing work and not being paid for it so the cost adjudication I think works in favour of the lawyers as well where work has been done and, and not paid for um, previously there was a great reluctance to highlight that but but I think it will I, I think it will help improve that side of things I'm intrigued by the research that, that Fiona has done and I wonder if you know if the same would the big legal firms cooperate with phone calls in the same or you know queries from your office in the same way about their fee income and I was just thinking as you as you were speaking so much of fee of legal fee income is available online for the state work done you know you can think of Arthur Cox in particular for the HSE and certain other government functions but it's limited just to that what's really interesting is maybe the commercial side well, of course, and uh, I mean, I, I think the the record would show that uh, you know that fees can be published by way of parliamentary questions, but that uh, freedom of, of information requests for a for data as to the level of fees paid by the state are, are very often re- refused, indeed. Well, but it's at least at least th- some information about the fees charged is out, is out there. But as I said, it's restricted, as you've said, to the to the state work. Could you foresee uh, a day under this new uh, regulatory architecture in which fees earned by uh, the major legal firms and other smaller firms would be published as a matter of routine? I, I, I can foresee it. It's possible. It's up to, I think, the regulator, really, to, to make an assessment about whether that's necessary and in the public interest. Obviously, solicitors' fees are already sent, the solicitors' accounts are already sent to the Law Society as a regulator, and that, that will continue to, to be the case. Um, but let's see. Let's see what teeth this regulator has and how it goes about its business. But the level of fees is not the public of same is not embraced as a matter of routine within the within the bill as cast. It's not 
but it's not a necessary thing to put in a bill, I think. I think that is something properly for an independent regulator to make a determination on. Fiona Redden, as a, as a reporter working in, the, in this world, what kind, of, um, what kind of questions would arise when it comes to um, scrutiny of, of large companies who's, in, in a scenario where uh, the revenue, where public accounts are, are, where accounts are publicly available for a whole swathe of companies? Well, it just struck me there when Jennifer was speaking about um, the disclosure of fees. And I guess in the accountancy side, there is far more disclosure because, as you mentioned in company reports, these institutions, companies, public bodies have to disclose how much they pay for their audit. And maybe that gives a bit of a competitive impetus then to decrease fees. I mean, Bank of Ireland, for example, between 2012 and 2014, it knocked about 500,000 off its audit fee. And perhaps by this disclosure of fees, other firms know what an institution is getting, that it might make the market more competitive And if it was similar in legal services. Very interesting. But the argument will be made in the legal world in Dublin that, uh, look at, I mean, certainly at the level of the high-level business law firms, they are firms which are dealing much like the accounting firms with global businesses. They're operating in a global market, a global competitive market, where uh, some of the purchasers of these services will be purchasing legal services all around the world. And that it's an open market and a competitive market in that respect. Yes, but they still require domestic work to be done. I'm not sure that that's a a, a complete, a a full picture of the necessity of legal services in Dublin and Ireland today. Jennifer Carroll McNeil and Fiona Redden, thanks a million. That's it for this week's business podcast. Join us again next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.